Hello. And welcome to Pop Tarts. I do lots of spell castings. I keep a grimoire. Oh, bright lights, bright lights, Gizmo. And then, of course, there's murder. You want to read the Polly book? Good morning, here's your copy. Billy Porter, that's all that matters. What drag queens and kids are awake at the same time? I'm Emily Rems. I'm Callie Watt. We are both editors of Bust Magazine in Brooklyn, New York. We love talking to each other about pop culture. We love talking to you about pop culture. And today we have a super excellent guest. Our guest has been a beloved author in feminist literary circles for over 20 years. Michelle T's books for grown-ups include Modern Tarot, Valencia, and Black Wave. She's got a YA fantasy trilogy that includes the titles Mermaid in Chelsea Creek, Girl at the Bottom of the Sea, and Castle on the River Vistula. And she's now penning gorgeous astrology books for little ones, illustrated by the great Mike Perry, who I know you know from Broad City and their crazy opening credits. Uh, These astrology books include Astro Baby and the forthcoming Astro Pals series, and each of those tells a sweet story about each sign. She's written for Harper's, The Believer, Art Forum, Cosmopolitan, Lenny Letter, and BuzzFeed. She created Drag Queen Story Hour. She founded the online parenting journal Mother Magazine in 2013 after she and her wife welcomed a beautiful son. And she is an Aquarius with a Leo rising and a Sagittarius moon. We're so excited to have her here. <laughs> Welcome, Michelle T. Oh my gosh, thanks, you guys. I love being here. You're in the here. Museum of Bus. Museum of <laughs> Bus. So incredible. So I cool. first became aware of you and your work when I was in college. Every queer punk girl I encountered was obsessed with Sister Spit. Oh, cool. For those of you who aren't aware, this is sort of like a lesbian feminist spoken word collective that was touring all over the co- like every college had like a sister spit like touring stop i think <laughs> we tried and um the, you guys were touring all over the place bust was founded around the same time uh-huh um tell me a little bit about how the riot girl 90s helped birth your literary career um well i was in my 20s in the 90s and i had i was really rootless and i'd moved to san francisco kind of fleeing my estranged family fleeing like a breakup and I knew one person in San Francisco, my good friend Peter. And when I got there, I, d- I didn't really know what I was getting into. But as it happened, there was this whole explosive world of like dyke culture that was happening in the Mission District where there were all these crazy punk, BDSM, artist, activist girls who were like fierce. They were, all, you know, gender nonconforming before we had that kind of language, you know, and there was also simultaneously a uh, an explosion of spoken word that was happening uh, in in bars and coffee shops that was very accessible. And I'd always known I wanted to be a writer. I didn't go to college. Um, I didn't really have a lot of dire- direction. Well, I had some direction, but I didn't have a lot of resources. So to hit town and see like, oh my gosh, I can take my poems and I can be part of this scene or this community and read my work to people who can like heckle me or clap for me and and trade chat books with other poets I really like and meanwhile go to these wild punk clubs and get in like fights with gay boys on the dance floor for taking up too much space during a <laughs> bikini kill song 
long. Thank you. Girls to like, the front. Yeah. <laughs> it was it was really exciting. Um, and then you know I, that's I just started writing in earnest. Um, and I'm really grateful that I landed during a time when there was this spoken word um, scene happening because I didn't have any contacts with publishing and I didn't know how a person got published and if I didn't have something sort of concrete that I could do with my writing I don't know that I would have kept writing but I could bring it to these events and read them on the mic and as a result my my writing voice developed in a way that was is very kind of um speakerly and slangy and has a sort of um you know rhythm to it it's probably lost that a little now that when I write I do write to be read more than to be read out loud but my first few books like they were all those chapters were written as discrete pieces to just be read out loud at performances so they kind of have a particular sound to them that's another kinship that I feel like you have with bust magazine like especially when bust first started out and when I discovered it it felt like a letter from my best friend to me it didn't seem like journalism as much as like getting a letter from like a girl who really understood me and totally. I feel like that is a, a similar quality that your writing has had for so many women that it it doesn't feel like reading as much as communicating with yeah. like-minded women yeah or women yet. I think that's really true I mean I feel like it's like an un, a deliberate like unlearning of the sort of patriarchal middle-class professional voice I mean I didn't really have to unlearn it because I didn't go I went I went to two two semesters of college so I shouldn't say I didn't go at all but I went enough to know that um I I mean I did I didn't go because I couldn't afford it I probably would have kept trying to go but it was really a bummer the way they just kind of try to ruin your voice you know and Uh so I feel I feel grateful that I kind of got to keep mine and I and I feel like it was part of this you know like right place right time where the zeitgeist was like on the heels of the zine explosion where um people were really empowered to tell their story in their own voices and to keep it personal and keep it intimate and and there's an audience for that and that audience ended up being a lot bigger than we knew maybe when we were making zines in our bedroom right something that I really admire about your career is that it's so multidisciplinary as we said in your 90s incarnation there's a lot of spoken word poetry and then you became really synonymous with autobiography and novels and you were the queer fiction it girl of the early aughts and then essays sort of stepped in and and you were writing more for online journals like exo jane and then now there's this astrology piece where you were writing for adults about astrology and now kids (laughs) um and and because you work in so many genres do you ever have fans who wish that you would stick to whatever part of your career that they like the best people are are people ever like, when are you going to do more poems or when are you going to do more memoirs or when are you going to do more novels? Like, do you, do you feel at all hemmed in by personal, the personal preferences of your fans? No, I feel like really lucky that people like check out whatever it is I, I work on. I feel like there's a, some, some sort of audience out there for it, which is really cool. Um, people do ask me when I'm going to write more poems, which is really sweet. And I actually feel really guilty for not writing poems. Like I've abandoned, a fragile art form that needs all the support that it can get. And um, I love, I love poetry. I love reading poetry and I don't know what happened, man. I just stopped. It's like, I, I feel like I need a, I, I need a certain sort of dreamy space in my mind and in my life for poems to come in. And unfortunately I think I have been cramming my life and my mind so full of stuff for so long that I don't have that 
um, dreamy, daydreamy space. I don't allow, I don't allow for it. And I bet if I did, and I, and I started reading more poetry in earnest, the poems would come back. That's mm -hmm. kind of the state mm -hmm. I was in when I first started writing poetry. I was new to San Francisco. Like I said, I only had one friend. I had a lot of free time. I was devouring poetry and it just was there. You know, it was there. It was there for me. So it's like yoga. There's a poetry <laughs> muscle memory. <laughs> you think so? <laughs> for a couple of years, I think I, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but from around 2011 to 2013, I was reading you documenting your very personal process of trying to get pregnant on Exogene. Yeah. Um, you ultimately carried a beautiful, magical fetus <laughs> made Magic fetus. from the ingredients of your wife's egg and a sperm from a special magical drag queen donor yes uh to term and you have such an amazing little baby boy who's right here in the bus studio today in the museum of bus i can't right even now. see him he's like hidden by boxes of magazines <laughs> he's, behind he's like watching youtube on my phone it's his favorite <laughs> number one favorite thing to do in life You've you've never been shy up until this point about sharing personal information, but this seems like really the most personal, intimate journey that you could take. And you did it really publicly in terms of IVF and uh -huh. and would you be able to carry a child and would you be able to carry a child in this way and mm -hmm. at your age and all of these factors and i imagine that there was all kinds of pushback from conservative weirdos because it was on the internet <laughs> um how do you feel about that decision to do that now and do you have any privacy <laughs> in life I, <laughs> I have i definitely have some privacy but for whatever reason i don't require a lot i i don't have a lot of shame about things it doesn't necessarily bother me to know that people know things about me like it doesn't I don't know like it just doesn't land in a way that feels troublesome to me so um and I love stories and I'm very aware when my own life is in a is in a place where well this is a cool story you know mm -hmm. um and yeah I loved I loved having a place to kind of put that whole experience which was took many years and went through many different phases of getting pregnant you know I started as a single person um and my friend who's a drag queen um coming over my house and with uh, with the help of my best friend like you know him going off in the kitchen and jerking off in a bowl and my friend bringing it to me in my room and using a little baster or whatever and then it ended up you know that that was never going to work and then I fell in love and and Dashiell my partner became involved and we ended up going the assisted reproductive technology route um and that's kind of the only way I would have been able to have a baby um because of my age my eggs like I guess at 40, you just, you know, you've a lot of your eggs aren't viable anymore. And according to the doctor I saw, I had less than average. Mm -hmm. And then when they found out that my partner had ovaries and was 10 years younger than me, they were really excited. And they're like, we don't want to talk to you anymore. Bring them in. <laughs> <laughs> so, so yeah. So, but I, I loved it and it was never, um, I, I feel great about having put it out there and I know it was inspiring to a lot of people. And it actually, I mean, you know, the internet, as we know, is such a, a garbage fire, but it, the, the comment section was really beautiful. I mean, like, I got so much support. There was only ever a few snarky comments, and bizarrely, it would be about, like, when I talked about astrology. People oh would be God. like, I don't know why she thinks we care about that. I'm like, 
first of all, I don't know why you think I care about what you think. Like yeah, I'm, yeah. <laughs> I'm always writing about what's interesting to me and astrology is interesting to me, but like that was, that was it really. It was pretty, it was, it made me kind of renewed, renewed my faith in humanity a little bit. It was very sweet. Uh huh. Part of me wonders if it would have been the same if you had done it now because right. things feel really fucked up right now. No, it's really true. It's like the whole tone of life has shifted so dramatically um, in, in, in every quadrant. And I think that you're right. I think that, yeah, th there probably would have been a different response, you know, and um, I had a lot of privilege going into it to be able to access the, so the reproductive technology. When I first started trying to get pregnant, I was on like, I went to the free clinic. I didn't have health care, which has been my case for my whole adult life with a couple of exceptions. But my partner had a really great job and put me on their health care. So we did have, thanks to them, we had the, the resources to pursue that. Can I ask what role the, the drag queen donor plays in the life of your child? You know, they're, they're around. We're friends. I love them. Um, they're amazing. Um, they've like brought Addie some gifts, you know, books and toys and stuff here and there. And now we live in the same town, so we see each other a little bit more, but not that much. Um, so, yeah, they're just sort of accessible if and when Addie wants to talk. Like you know? uncle style, maybe? Yeah, we call him Donny. <laughs> oh he's, he's Addie's Donny. Yeah. Yeah. I love it. So he's, he's great. I mean, he's the best, you know, and, and we, you know, don't want to tax him with undue responsibilities. It's, we weren't really interested in, in co-parenting with him and he wasn't interested in that either, but is also available, which is That's lovely. Awesome. Yeah. And willing to be known, of course. So it's the future that we always dreamed of. Yeah. It's so Wonderful. great. Yeah. I mean, you know, when I was, I, I, I got to learn a lot actually by doing the getting pregnant with Michelle T column when I was writing about, um, donors versus sperm banks. There was a moment when we were looking at sperm banks, me and Dashiell, and, and you know, there were um, donor kids who were adults now who were like weighing in on the comments. And I learned a lot from them about that, like, that it can be really challenging and hard to not know yeah. who your parent is, you know? And, and I really get that. Like, I know that myself, the way that I um, attach to stories and I can be kind of obsessive. Look, if I grew up knowing there was some stranger out there that was like a parent, I would have been obsessed with them. You know, yeah. I would have had to find them um, yeah. for sure. It's that fantasy that you were really adopted, but it's like true, you know, um, like so, Harry Potter. Yeah. And so I, I, I just I, I liked this way because I just it seemed like that was what was hard for people. But people who just grew up and that was always part of their story. It's just normal. It's just life. It's, you know, that person over there helped us make you and no big, no big whoop. <laughs> yeah. I love it. Yeah. Tell me absolutely everything about Drag Queen Story Hour. <laughs> I love it so much. Yeah. Um, it's such a great idea. They have Thank it here. You. They have it in Industry City. It is the, the, you know, the New York City chapter is by far the biggest, most professional, most fabulous chapter in the world, I think. Them in Sweden, the one in Stockholm, Sweden. Because the Swedish government is so amazing, they actually gave the two queens who run it a year off paid <gasps> so they could just focus on Drag Queen Story Hour. Because that's how they do it in Sweden. So. Oh, my God. I know. Oh, my Tell God. Tell our listeners who aren't familiar with it the history of the project. Sure. Um, well, Drag Queen Story Hour is what it sounds like. It's drag queens reading children's literature to kids in a story time sort of setting. Um, it, it's, I started it in 2015 um, under the guise of uh, Radar Productions, which was a literary nonprofit I created and ran for a long time in San Francisco. I was putting a grant together and um, the grant was to do some programming in the Castro neighborhood and I was just 
looking to see what all my venues were, and one venue was the library. And I'd most recently been at this library for a story hour with my son. He had just he was you know just an infant, and I was going to a lot of story hours at that time. And um, you know it was the first time I found myself in straight space basically in decades. I mean I had my kid when I was forty um, or over forty, and I'd spent decades almost exclusively in queer arts circles, you know, and to suddenly be in all of these environments that were de facto straight, like nobody would call them straight. Certainly everyone's welcome at a story hour at your library, but you know, most of the folks there were straight and there's Yeah, I think of libraries as somehow conservative spaces. You know, they're not actually. Librarians are super radical. And if you think about it, libraries are like one of the most socialist institutions. Like if you think about America yeah. and you're like, wait, America at some point valued there being buildings where people could come and read books for free. Like right. America doesn't want to do anything for free, you That's know? That's true. So, um, so yeah, it, 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 so it's not about the library or the librarians. It just was, I think more about like who's ha having kids, I guess, or something. I don't know. Um, but I thought, Oh, we could do a, a story hour, but we could queer it cause it was a queer grant and we could have drag queens reading the stories. And, you know, read your very progressive social justice kids literature of which we're having a sort of boom of right now, mm -hmm. I think. Mm -hmm. And we got the grant and the, um, the event happened and it just totally took off. It got a lot of attention right away. Um, the feminist press here in New York wanted to do a version of it while I was in town and I said, yes, let's do it. And the New Yorker showed up to cover it and it just was off. Like, and then everybody who caught wind of it was like, can I do one in my town? And it was like, of course you can, you know, and they're happening everywhere, Massachusetts, Texas, Arizona, you know, um, Europe, Asia, like I've just been getting, I've gotten emails from all over the world. And are these folks following like a blueprint that you have online or are they just doing it and crediting you or you're just sort of hearing about it? I mean, sometimes they credit me. Sometimes they're kind of going rogue, which is mostly fine. You know, um, sometimes they reach out and, you know, especially now with the New York City chapter being so professional, like they have accumulated like best practices and they have a sort of training that they do. Um, so I really refer people who want more concrete information. I refer them to that chapter because they are so helpful. They've become a real resource. When I heard about it, the main issue that I thought of was what drag queens and kids are awake at the same time. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I know props to all the queens who get up at like who knows what hour, like, yeah. you know, to get in full face and come and show up at a preschool or a library at like 10 o'clock in the morning. Like amazing. Unheard of. And I mean, I'm in my 40s. I recall being in school and having teachers who were closeted because if they weren't, then they would be fired. Oh, yeah. So it seems like a big leap in a short time yeah, to I, me. I think that that's true. Um, and I think, you know, I, I obviously choose to live in um, very queer-friendly places. And so, you know, in the cities and stuff like that, it's obviously a lot easier to bring Drag Queen Story Hour into a library or a school than it is in other parts of the country, you know, where, where there's still a lot of homophobia and a lot of conservative attitudes. And those places have been struggling, um, for sure. But, you know, it took, it took the conservative 
people like a few years <laughs> before they started protesting. And so by the time they started, they weren't cool enough to know about it. Uh, maybe. I mean, by the time they started really protesting it, I was like, are you guys kidding me? Like, it's so boring. Like this has been going on for years. Like, Get know, with it. Like, go, what are you even doing? And when you're confronted with protesters, like, is, do you just like shrug and move on? Or is there, is there any recourse? I mean, there, I have reached out to some librarians and some communities that have dealt with protesters just to let them know that, like, I don't know, I see them and I support them and if I can help in any way. Um, in L.A., we really haven't had I was managing the Los Angeles chapter for a while and then I handed it over to a queen to Queen Pickle to do. Um, and we never had any. I, I personally haven't experienced protests, but I just know that they have occurred in places. Um so yeah, I don't I don't know what I would do. It's like I just feel so past the point of trying to make a case for why this is okay. You know, it's like mm-hmm. I'm 48. I'm not gonna explain to you why me and my culture deserve to live. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like no, <laughs> I just was you know asked to be um, a keynote speaker at this amazing conference on gender and um, and drag that was happening at a Christian university. Really? And, yeah. And you know, there's like some really great faculty there who are queer and. I guess even though it's a Christian university, they're very allowing of education and free speech up until a point. And then I found out kind of close to departure that they had the school had canceled the drag queen story hour portion. So I was like, I don't think I can come, you know, like my I don't know. Like I know that that might, you know, consign me to speaking to the converted. But I feel like I've done my time kind of on the front lines yelling at people and trying to explain basic concepts to people who are willfully resistant to accepting the humanity of other people. And I just don't want the remainder of my life to have that much Mm -hmm. of those kind of interactions. Like I'm happy staying in a bubble, talking to the bubble, inviting others from into the bubble, (laughs) (laughs) be in the bubble with us, you know, and I'm really grateful for folks who are out there doing that kind of fighting and that kind of dialogue. But I just feel like, I really just feel too old for it. I just feel like it does feel like I'm trying to explain to people why I deserve to live. And I just feel like I can't, that doesn't feel, that feels beneath me at this point. Astro pals. Astro pals. So that's what you're uh, on the move touring with right now. Yes. I'm here in New York city and in Brooklyn um, for Astro babies and the which was the very first book um, put out by daughter press, which is a sort of intro astrology one Oh one, um, for kids. Illustrated. And there's never been astrology for kids before, right? Not for little kids. I mean, there's, so cute. yeah. Oh, thank you. Yeah. I mean, you know, I'm, I read to my kid constantly and I'm always looking for books to bring home. And there are so many cool kind of more like indie social justice, alternative kids books, but I haven't seen anything in that sphere. And so I was like, Oh, I'll do it. And uh, Jennifer Baumgartner at daughter was interested, which is really fun. And shared my vision for it being more of a series. Um, so I think Libra, if Libra is not out right now, it's going to be out any minute and it will be followed by Scorpio. Libra's book is called Decisions, Decisions. Scorpio's is called Very Intense. And <laughs> it's been really fun for me. Um, I mean, you know, as an adult who has written horoscopes and who's been obsessed with astrology like my whole life, um, I, I really resist the way that sun sign astrology and horoscopes um, kind of dumb down the depth of astrology a lot, you know? Um, and I resist that. And, you know, when I was writing horoscopes, it's actually really hard to resist it because you're just summing up basically a month's worth of, you know, movement in the skies and three mm-hmm. sentences and, uh. but for this, I felt like it's a kid's book, 
and simplicity is the name of the game, no matter yeah. what you're writing about. And it just felt sort of like, huh, I'm just going to pick one sort of classic trait of a sign and I'm going to come, come up with a conflict centered around it and have some fun with it. So it's it. not, you know, for there was, there was already a, a, a Libra on the internet who was like, I don't know why indecision is a, people say that about Libras. I'm very decisive. And you know, I'm like, you're also very contrary, which is another Libra trait, but that's <laughs> cool too. I'm like, you know, like, yeah, of course not everybody falls into every single trait of right. their, you know, it's mm -hmm. like, I'm an Aquarius and Same. oh are you right mm -hmm. on but yeah you know not everybody relates to everything in their sign as an Aquarius I feel like I'm supposed to be very like aloof and I don't I guess maybe I come off sometimes as more aloof than I might realize but I don't think I'm that yeah I don't aloof. really peg on that one either. you know so it's like you, you know not everyone is everything I have other things influencing my my sun sign as everybody does but um you know here's what I've noticed about Aquarians my mom and my life partner well have the same birthday. And it's not that the Aquarians, the very important Aquarians in my life are aloof, so to say, like, so to speak, but it's more like Aquarians ha are on their own trip, <laughs> like so, so intensely that like either you're on it or you're not even in their field of vision. Wow. Like, which can come off as aloof, but okay. it's really like... If you're it's hanging out with an Aquarian, like buy the ticket, take the ride <laughs> or else like get the hell out of the way. Cause oh, like I can they're stand behind that. I like that. They're like oh, doing their, their thing. Yeah. Um, do kids get the, you know, like the thing that's so tasty about astrology for adults is like, Oh my God, I'm just like my sign. And like, I see myself in this and that and all right. those things. But children's, identities are so pulpy and still forming yep. like do they get that same uh enjoyment out of astrology or is it just a story I wonder you know and it's like I um and because kids identities are in formation I did feel also hesitant to create a piece of media that's basically telling them what they are mm -hmm. rather than them discovering that for themselves you know um but I remember learning about astrology. My grandmother and my mother really loved astrology and thinking it was so special that I, there were these qualities and that they, they were mine and mm -hmm. it felt really nice. And so I kind of was hoping that it would be something more like that and that, you know, kids can be like, oh, you know, I'm Libra and I like balance and I like fairness and like that's something special about me. And, mm -hmm. you know, that's why especially, you know, I just did all the positive traits in the intro right. book, right? And then in the in the pals books where it's sign by sign I had to bring in you know a challenging trait because you need conflict for mm -hmm. a book like you know a story to to operate but yeah I think that um I don't know I guess we'll see I I kids have been really fascinated by it they're curious about it mm -hmm. um the zodiac is so interesting with the symbols and mm -hmm. fire and water and different you know different symbols and stuff and and creatures I know that my kid is a Libra, but he's on the very last day of Libra. The doctors, he was breech. And um, so I had to have a C-section and the doctors tried to make me come back the next day. But four planets moved into Scorpio <gasps> the next day. <laughs> and there was also a lunar eclipse. And I was like, didn't want to have a surgery during a lunar eclipse with four planets in Scorpio. Oh, my God. And both me and my partner, our moms and sisters are Scorpios. And so I even checked in with my sister. I was like, am I a bad person? Because I am want to get this kid out of me today and have it be all Libra and, and not four planets in Scorpio. I mean, I think Scorpios are some of the most brilliant, passionate, genius 
entertaining, rich, like, characters on the planet. Debbie Stiller, founder of Bust, Scorpio. Scorpio. They get shit done. They really do. But, you know, my sister's like, it's too much. It's <laughs> too much to have. It's so, it's too much to even have one planet in Scorpio. Four planets in Scorpio is hor You know, so I got the blessing from an actual Scorpio to protect my child <laughs> from an <laughs> overload oh, of Plutonian energy. And oh, my God. We got him out in the nick of time. But guess what? He is a Scorpio. He's just a Scorpio. He's really he's Plutonian. He's dark. He's goth. I explained to him that he's goth and it and it made once I understood him as goth, it, it I found some peace around his macabre obsessions. Okay. <laughs> and he found a lot of like pride in his macabre obsessions. He loves all things Halloween. He loves he loves death. He loves talking about death, especially because it makes adults uncomfortable. He loves that. Okay. Um we went to a toy store on this trip because I told him he could get a toy and he picked out a prank kit. That includes like a fake bloody nail through your finger nice. and a whoopee cushion and uh, I guess gum that snaps you on the finger when you You pull have to it. take him to Coney Island. We did. Did you go to the sideshow? We did. Did he love it? He did. Oh, <laughs> oh my God. I'm just like, I feel like I'm exposing him to something formative right now. And I feel like this is like peak parenting for me. Like I feel so good. Like my job is done. He is watching this like amazing punk girl like he swallow a sword while... Hi, Atticus. Here he comes. I'm telling. We're talking about you, Atticus. Hi. We're talking about the um, Coney Island Circus Sideshow. Remember that? Atticus, did you like the sideshow? Listen, this is a podcast, so you can stay here, but it means you need to talk. Did you like the sideshow? Yeah. Yeah, it was amazing. <laughs> uh, I'm so glad you got to see that. That's great. Yeah, it was a really great time. Astrology is pretty woo-woo. Mm-hmm. Is there other woo-woo stuff that you like? Witchy stuff, psychic stuff, alien stuff, crystal stuff? <laughs> where I like where do all you the fall stuff. In I'm, the a, I'm a witch. Um, I have a practice. I have a solo practice that I'm pretty serious about. Um, I do lots of spell castings. I keep a grimoire. Um, right now, I'm really, really interested in um, psychedelic breath work. What's that? I know. Well, <laughs> I you know I live in L.A. It's a pretty woo place, actually. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's a mom at my son's preschool who offers it. And I went to one of her workshops thinking, I don't know, it was going to be relaxing or something. It's actually a fully psychedelic experience where you cry. You feel your, or in my case, I, f- I felt my chakras. My hands cramped up and went numb. Like, it's full body. It made me feel like that um, there's a film that the world puts over your sort of spiritual vision. I don't know how else to put it. Like your third eye has a film over it. And this breath work, for whatever reason, removes the film. And I had intense clarity about my life, about all these different issues in my life. Um, and it really has blown me away. And I've gone to gone back to her workshops. I mean, I wasn't expecting a spiritual experience at all. Like mm-hmm. even when she's like, oh, you know, sometimes people cry. I was like, I'm not going to cry. You know, I'm fine. But, you know, I cried and it was very emotional. I felt my heart chakra very powerfully. And since then, I've used it to kind of work through. I, I've, I've been using it to work through a breakup I was going through. Like I use it to um, just sort of grow my spiritual connection to the universe. Um, I want to start sharing it with friends and just having some at my house. I mean, they're really it's a really incredible experience if you get to. I mean, it I probably cool. sound like a cult leader right now, but. Yeah. I mean, I'm a sober person. So to get to have a legit psychedelic experience (laughs) and retain my sobriety. And um, it's been it's been really cool. I had a visionary experience this afternoon right before this. What happened? There's a place 
in Manhattan called Goku, and there's four of them in Japan, mm-hmm. and th- just this one um, opened in New York this spring, and it's the only one in America, and it's just head squeezing. What? Like, so it's this spa where you sit in a very comfortable chair, and a woman who smells like warm lavender. Oh my God rubs your she like runs her fingers through your hair and rubs your scalp and like the areas around your eyes and like the areas behind your ear for an hour and like soft music plays and a woman very it it doesn't feel like a masseuse so much because it's very sort of like slow and methodical and loving oh my gosh <laughs> and so, you sort of so, feel so, like things sound I great know. you feel like a child getting their hair Oh, done There's by a mom. I like more than having my hair played with. I, I mean, know. is there a better feeling in the <laughs> world? <laughs> and it's supposed to help you sleep. Mm-hmm. So I'm gonna find out tonight. Wow, if it helps me because I can't sleep for shit. But I'm just the experience was very. It kind of was like a mosh because it made you feel like a child being cared for by like oh, a very sweet. competent woman who loves you, even though she was a stranger. Oh, I love that. It felt grand. Yeah. Love to get the effects of meditating without having to meditate. Yeah. <laughs> I have a question about um, someone that I found very fascinating who you have worked with. Um, and that's JT Leroy. I know that JT Leroy worked on an anthology that you edited or contributed, contributed to Contributed a piece, yeah. And for those of you who don't know, JT Leroy is the pen name of a, a woman who successfully passed herself off as a young queer male literary genius with a background in sex work. She was actually a grown-ass lady. This persona cultivated many celebrity friendships by phone and had a huge following, showed up at bust parties and created a sensation. What was your JT Leroy experience like? Oh, I mean, I don't want to get too into this because whenever I do, Laura Albert finds me (laughs) and and trolls me. but and and honestly, I just feel like whatever, like your scam, your hustle, you're trying to get over, like go for it. But I I got personally scammed in that I was kept on the phone and and sort of you were a phone friend. I for was a, a phone friend time. for a person who I thought I was talking to a a very traumatized 16 year old uh, queer person who was dealing with gender issues, and um, I definitely wouldn't have stayed on the phone for quite so long or put up with the emotional abuse (laughs) that I put up with had I had I known that it was an adult woman who was working something else out so yeah um yeah it was it only happened a couple times you know but it was it was very it was very confusing and did you read about the lady what did she end up being 24 and I think they were in Turkey this family had just adopted this person they thought was 14 I believe and then they tried the 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 girl tried to kill him several times, and then it turns oh my out gosh. that the, it, it was a grown-ass person no. pretending to be a teen. Yeah. I mean, yeah, your standards for behavior are different depending on so many things. Right. So many things. And and this persona checked a lot of boxes as far as being like a sober addict. Like, I'm a sober addict and HIV positive and on the, on the cusp of a gender transition and, you know, homeless and just, you know, everything that makes you want to um, give give the person a lot of space and allow for a lot of like triggers and traumatized behavior and Mm -hmm. and stuff like that so and you know these this person this adult female might also carry you know tons of triggers and trauma but it just was false pretenses you know such a wild story it is yeah let's talk about feminism let's do it 
Let's do you identify it. with the term currently and how has your feminism evolved throughout your career? I do identify as a feminist. It just feels like, duh, you know, like, um, and I think, you know, I started identifying as a feminist in my early 20s and it's pretty much stayed consistent. You know, I just feel like it just means like women identified, female identified people um, have the right to personal autonomy and the freedom to do whatever we want, basically. Yeah. yeah, it's very broad. <laughs> you know, <laughs> that sounds about right. Yeah, you know, including like the right to fuck up and do stupid things, and but just you know, freedom to me is just about freedom. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What are your hopes and your dreams and your plans for 2020? And do you have thoughts on the election that will be happening? Oh next my year? god, <laughs> my hopes and my dreams for the next year. I just hope that any Democrat wins the election. Mm-hmm. I mean, my personal choice is Elizabeth Warren. Me too. Yeah, I just love her so much, but I don't even care. Like, I just don't, I've never cared less. I've never cared less. Actually, you know, it would actually piss me off if Biden. Yeah, I would be not, mad. I'm not a, not I would be not upset. I don't think it's going to happen, but honestly. I would be far less upset. In the tears, I mean, I would take Biden. Sure, 100%. I, yeah. I would be a bit miffed. Yeah, <laughs> totally, totally. It's like gradations of sexual harassment. Like, which one will you pick, you know? Um, but... Yeah, and then, for, I don't know, for the rest of the year, I really want to focus a lot more on tarot reading and and, um, and offering my tarot services and offering tarot workshops. Fun! Yeah, and I'm going to be offering writing workshops um, independently, and so I'm just sort of on, on the verge of getting that all organized. I need support because I'm not great at, like, tech or business and web stuff, but I'm kind of in the process the of fun part of the whole thing. It really is. And as a, yeah. And as an Aquarius, <laughs> the <laughs> details tend to escape me. Um, yeah. That's another way I'm not like an Aquarius, like technology. I'm looking at the Aquarius producer at the end of the table, is very comfortably sitting among all of these cords and wires and blips and blops. And I, yeah, that stuff is hard for me, but, um, but I'm in the process of, getting it together so that I can offer a lot more workshops and stuff like that. Cause I really like teaching. I like teaching in person. I like teaching virtually. I like reading tarot cards. I like reading tarot cards via Skype. I like reading tarot cards in my office. So yeah, I'm just going to be focusing a lot more on that. Right on. I love it. Mm-hmm. One thing that we ask all of our guests is what you're watching. And when I say what you're watching, I'm talking about movies, TV, Books, podcasts, music, music videos, anything right, that right, you're consuming pop culturally, we want to know about it. All right. Michelle T., what you watching? Well, um, today I watched a little bit of Gremlins because my son saw it for the first time. Gremlins 1, the original? Gremlins Yeah, it. the original Gremlins. Um, I needed to kind of park him in front of a TV while I had a meeting. And I had texted my partner and I was like, you know, he's watching Gremlins. And my partner was like, alone, like worried. And I was just like, Dude, it's so not scary. Like, yeah. it's so <laughs> not scary. You go back and you're like, oh, that was so creepy. It looks but it's like, like it's just so cheesy now. Yeah. Like, the but evil gremlin popped it. up and it's like so clearly like a plastic toy. You know, it's yeah. like, I don't know, CGI and computer and then stuff. You have the is, cute gremlin. Like, what's oh, his name? Bright lights, oh. Gizmo. Gizmo. Like, that's just. Such yeah. A it makes you want to ransack character. every store in Chinatown looking for him. Um, what else am I doing? I'm, re- I'm, I'm watching, I'm kind of in the middle of Euphoria and I'm in the middle of the last season of The Handmaid's Tale. Mm-hmm. Um, so good. Yeah, both of those shows. I haven't seen Euphoria yet, but Oof, I've seen a lot so good. of makeup blogs. Yeah. Apparently that makeup is a it's, thing. It's really good makeup. Like the new Margaret Atwood book yeah. is really good too. Oh, is it? It's really good. I just finished, for, for books, I just finished A Year Without a Name. I had an advanced copy of it, Cyrus Grace uh, Dunham's memoir. I really liked it. And I'm reading um, some books that I'm going to blurb. 
and oh my god I'm reading um a polyamory book called more than two that that's like me and my partner we sit in bed every morning and we read part of more than two out loud Aww. to each other that's to, so loud. to study polyamory so that we don't ruin each other's lives while dating that's other people adult. yeah very adult. it's cool it's cool we're into it it's pretty cool it's pretty cool <laughs> <laughs> it's really nerdy though we're like do you want to read the poly book good morning here's your coffee oh, so <laughs> <cute>. yeah <laughs> awesome mm-hmm. before i let you go um I love the tattoos on your fingers. Oh, thank you. You have hearts tattooed on your fingers. Mm-hmm. I have no tattoos. If mm. I were to get any tattoos, I want to get the word feminist tattooed on my knucks. Yes. Cute. And people keep telling me that no responsible tattoo artist would tattoo my fingers as a first tattoo. What are your thoughts on that? Well, historically that's been really true and it's always really pissed me off because it's like your body your choice like who's to say you know like I mean thank you my knuckle tattoos are sort of my favorite like if I could erase almost all the tattoos on my body I would and I'd leave just like my fingers I think it's a really cool look to only have your fingers tattooed and I think that that is a um a sort of little like rule that came from another time period when right. it was so forbidden to have tattoos yeah, that like, like what am I not going to get into college? I'm in my yeah, 40s. I mean, <laughs> if you walked in exactly like you're a grown ass woman, enough. like if you wanted feminist on your, on your, not, I mean, you will find who's listening podcast land who is going to raise to this rise this occasion and tattoo feminist on emily's knuckles you're probably going to have to fight tattoo artists off now yeah no that would be (laughs) so cool you should definitely do it apply at (laughs) emilyramsatbus.com thank you so much for coming i know you have to catch a flight you have been a delight and i'm so happy to finally meet you same thank you for having me here i love bus amazing when we're gonna take the briefest of breaks and when we come back i'm gonna ask callie and callie's gonna ask me what What you watching Hey, podcast fans. Did you know that the best place to listen to your favorite shows ad-free is Stitcher Premium? They've got Conan O'Brien Needs a Friend, My Favorite Murder, Wolverine The Lost Trail, Bitch Sesh, The Fantasy Footballers, Science Rules with Bill Nye, and more, all without commercial interruptions. And we can hook you up with a sweet deal. To get one month free, go to stitcher.com premium and use promo code POPTARTS. That's stitcher.com slash premium, promo code POPTARTS. Before we get back to the show, I want to tell you about our new sponsor, Wolfie Vibes Publicity. If you're working on a new project and find yourself in need of a kick-ass publicist who communicates well and works tirelessly to get you the coverage you're after, consider going to Wolfie Vibes Publicity. Wolfie Vibes Publicity is a female-owned and operated boutique PR firm that will get you where you need to be. And you'll even have fun in the process. Get in touch via wolfievibespublicity.com for details and quotes. And tell them that Pop-Tart sent you. Uh, essentially, I started it because every female comedian I know was amazing and hardworking and hilarious. And I knew would make great podcasts. And every male comedian I know already had a podcast and was doing their own thing. <laughs> Hi, I'm Kate Moldenhauer, the founder of More Banana Podcasts, a comedy podcast network entirely produced, hosted, and led by women. We have shows about politics. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Let's Get Civical. When the Supreme Court puts stuff on their calendar, they use the word docket. So their Google Calendar is a docket. Is a docket. So technically, I have a docket. You have a docket. We all have docket. We all have a docket. Sex. Welcome to my vagina. I'm Jesse Karen. This is Rebecca Frank. What were ancient Greek dildos made of, Jesse? They were made of padded leather and, yep, anointed with olive oil. Yep. <laughs> 
hates scams. I'm Caitlin Bradley Smith. <laughs> and, and we love scams. scams. She tells them she's a German Russian heiress and she seems like she has a lot of money and people buy it. That's yeah. basically what's happening. So as soon as she got a loan, she would cash it as much as she could out before anybody caught on. Which Amazing. Was so smart. I mean, so like smart. Ten. I mean, it's terrible, but like to take that money out immediately. Because women are actually pretty versatile and funny. More Banana is a network of women's voices, unfiltered and uninterrupted. Find us everywhere you get your podcasts and learn about our growing roster of shows at morebanana.com. We're back. Our first underage guest. Yeah, those are very first underage guests. This is the first time a guest came with a child. We've had two dogs at uh at the studio so far, but not a child I mean, until the, today. The, charge, the dogs could have been underage. I didn't. <laughs> so, <laughs> so Callie, I gotta know. I need to know need what to you know. watching. Let's see. What should, should we start with the Emmys? You watch the Emmys? I watch the Emmys. What you gotta say about it? Billy Porter. That's all that matters. That's it. That's the takeaway. <laughs> I mean, I'm glad that Fleabag won a lot of stuff. I mean, apparently I really need to watch Fleabag, but I don't have Amazon. That's what it's on, right? Mm-hmm. I wonder if it'll show up somewhere else. I'm sure eventually it'll end up on Netflix, probably. Yeah. Or I could probably find it on other ways. Uh-huh. <laughs> other secret ways. <laughs> um, I watched the Clive Davis documentary, The Soundtrack of Our Lives, on Netflix. Good. Amazing. So much Whitney Houston. Oh my God, I'm sure. So you know I was there for all of that. Yeah. It was like you could tell they had a really great friendship and connection and he was like devastated over the death. But he's got the most well-rounded taste in music. Like he didn't have just one kind of genre. Yeah, Yeah. he broke everybody. He was, and he, he, because he was, started working with Puff Daddy. Yeah, I mean his Grammy pre-grammy party is still the place to be he, it was so amazing and i didn't know that he came out as bisexual like when he i didn't was, know that yeah he was like up there i don't know how old he was at the time i hate to overage him but biconic yeah it was that was really awesome um he's 87 now he never wants to retire it was a great watch you should watch it you know barry gordy just retired at 89 oh well let's see if clive keeps on going past yeah it was really, really fascinating. And like just the, the span of the genres and, and like he'll be listening to any music. He gets his finger going. <laughs> it was really cute. The rhythm finger. Yeah. Like you could tell when he was really hype on something. And then I watched Hello Privilege with Chelsea Handler. Uh-huh. Netflix also, right? Netflix also. As a person that had a talk show and as a talker, she did a really good job at listening. Oh, great. I mean, you have to listen to talk, but yeah, she really took herself back for a lot of it. Mm-hmm. Um, there was some very uncomfortable parts, as you can probably imagine. Like yeah. they brought up the book she wrote called Uganda. Be kidding me. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Which what the fuck was she thinking when she came up with that title? Yeah. Stop it. <laughs> and um, and a lot of people are dressed like to make a documentary about white privilege. You have to have white privilege. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So it was like that all was super interesting. And then there was this white rapper named Jelly Roll from Tennessee, who um, worked with, uh, he's opened up for the Insane Clown Posse, and he was, like, just dropping knowledge bombs. Okay. I loved that character. He was he was a real piece. He was probably the highlight of the whole, if you watched no, no other clip, I loved that one. 
Um, and then Chelsea talks about when she was young and she was dating, uh, she was a teen and she was dating a, a dude of color. And she realized like the whole time they were, he was a drug dealer though. Every time that they would get arrested and she didn't get in trouble, that was white privilege. And she was like, Oh, my whole childhood. <laughs> like, she, you know, you when you're that young, it probably doesn't resonate on you. Uh-huh. And then she went back to meet him, which was super cute. Her old high school fling. He mm-hmm. was out of jail. It, it was, it was, it was interesting. It was awkward, the whole thing, but it was also fascinating. Then I watched Talk About Awkward Between Two Ferns, the movie. I watched that, too. What was your take? <laughs> it was stupid, it but was stupid. I laughed out loud on multiple occasions. Which is what it was supposed to be. They drowned Matthew McConaughey before the opening credits, so that's not a spoiler. <laughs> <laughs> it was it was like some parts I was like, God, this is so bad. But then there I was just like, but this is also exactly the show. The part with that little person from Game of Thrones was really funny. Oh, yeah. Peter Dinklage. Yes. I love him. He was really funny in that. Um, And then I watched the first episode of American Horror Story 1984. Oh, I didn't realize I was out. Yes. And it is about the Night Stalker. Okay. You know, I love this bitch. Well, I'm not, you know, I just love the story. A true story. Horror killer. And also another killer named Mr. Jingles. Mr. Jingles. Is that real or fake? That's fake. Okay, but possibly they're the same person. I mean, it was just the first episode, so you don't really know how it goes yet. It's like a bunch of kids go to a summer camp. Oh, they're gr- the bunch of kids got killed in a summer summer camp in the seventies. The survivor buys the summer camp back. Now it's nineteen eighty four, and these people are fleeing from the Night Stalker back to the summer camp. And then, of course, there's murder. Do the people who have sex get murdered? Yes. First, uh, I don't if they got murdered first i do remember excellent blood spray oh, okay i know that's important to you yeah <laughs> fuck the sex it was the blood spray was really good uh and that's what i've been watching excellent and what about you callie i went to a movie theater like i paid money what? for a movie ticket People who know me know I'm a cheap bitch and I do almost all of my viewing at either press screenings or on the Netflix. Um, But I wanted to see Hustlers. And so I went with my heavy metal neighbor, Lori, and her sister, Kathy. I want to see it Rolled up to the Third Avenue Cinema like boss bitches. Like I had my Diet Cokes in my backpack and we settled into those cushy chairs because they... Like the the theaters in New York City now are all replacing their janky ass gross chairs with cushy lounge chairs. And so we lounged back and we watched this beautiful Hustlers movie that is written, directed by, produced by, starring women. I'm telling you that there were no actual male characters like there were men in the movie getting hustled, but they didn't have names or anything. I love it. It was only the only people with like any kind of meaningful characters or dialogue or anything was just women being women for women. I will also tell you that Jennifer Lopez is possibly the most beautiful woman in the world. I heard she stole all the scenes that she was really She stole good every at. scene. She was impossibly beautiful. She was practically naked and 50 and working the pole. She's amazing. I saw her walk what, what was that for Versace in the same yes. classic dress from oh. Good. It was the same dress, God. only she was more naked than she was the first time. She's it's, amazing. It doesn't make any sense. It does not. 
Coochie sell the soul too. I know Puerto Rican don't crack. There isn't like a fancy way to say that Puerto Rican doesn't get old. That mm-hmm. rhymes. <laughs> but, but anyway, I she's the best. Lizzo and not much Cardi B though. There is deceptively not a lot. Based on the ads, you would think that there would be more Lizzo and more Cardi than there actually is. But they're in it very briefly. That's very all I care about. Nakedly and briefly. I love it. That whole cast is just phenomenal. Yeah. For for anybody who's not familiar with the cast, this is an ensemble piece about that's based on a true story about women who worked at scores who were um, drugging Wall Street dudes and running up their credit cards. And the ensemble cast, uh, it stars Constance Wu and Jennifer Lopez. And then Julia Stiles, Kiki Palmer, Lily Reinhardt, Lizzo and Cardi B are all in it. And it's a delight. It sounds wonderful. I can't wait. I enjoyed it. Um, My boss, Lori, and my BFF, Johanna, both told me to watch Undone on Amazon Prime. And I really, really like it. It's an animated show for grown-up people um and it's created by the same dude behind bojack horseman Raphael bob waxberg and it's done if if anybody has ever seen that movie waking life it's the same thing where like it's animation on top of real actors who are then animated yeah and um it's really cool. It it follows this woman named Alma who gets into a car accident and then her relationship with time gets all weird. Like she goes sort of like on a vision quest while she's in a coma and like her dead father visits her and asks her to figure out who murdered him Ooh. from her comatose state because she can like travel through time while she's in a coma. Basically. Ah. It's really cool. It's very beautiful to look at. You can do all kinds of crazy stuff with animation that you can't do in real life. And they really uh, do the most with that. And I enjoy it. That sounds awesome. And on Hulu, I watched a very, very depressing documentary called The Last Days of Phil Hartman. Phil Hartman was my favorite cast member of Saturday Night Live probably ever. Ever? Probably. But in 1998, he was murdered by his wife, Bryn, who it seems like she was his third wife and it seems like she she was basically a trophy wife who wanted to be a star and i think that at some point in their courtship he promised her that if she stuck with him she would be a star but she did not become a star and she had a lot of resentment towards him as a result Uh. it uh even though he seems like a very gregarious and kind gentleman it seems also that he was a shitty husband but that's not a reason to murder someone let it be known that if you are married to a bad husband you can divorce him and walk away and (laughs) each live your own lives let it be known Uh, like she killed him and she doesn't she didn't even know why what happened like she was taking zoloft oh and cocaine and drinking oh and she was like at a friend's house and then like like four in the morning or something she like rolls home all like coked up and shot him while he was asleep while their little kids were asleep in the house and then like called her friend and called the cops or whatever and then like while the cops were coming she shot and killed herself orphaning their little kids and like between the time when she killed him and killed herself she called her friend for help and she was like i I killed Phil and I don't know why. Whoa. 
And so then her brother sued Zoloft, saying that it was the Zoloft's fault. But I'm going to say that, you know, probably there cocaine. Were, and yeah. Uh, it's probably a three people, three party party scene. You know, this isn't like eating on Ambien. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm going to go ahead and say Zoloft doesn't force you to kill your spouse. But it was really depressing and horrifying. Yeah, that sounds intense. Um, but I learned a lot about Phil Hartman that I didn't know before. So if you love Phil Hartman like I f- love Phil Hartman and you can handle it, The Last Days of Phil Hartman is on Hulu. And that is what I've been watching. Lovely. Thanks so much to our producers, Kate Moldenauer and Jesse Karen at More Banana Productions and our luscious audio engineer, Logan Del Fuego. We caliente. I'm so jealous you can make that <laughs> noise. I can't do that noise. And to our girl gang at Bust Magazine. You can find me on Twitter at Emily Rams, but you cannot find Callie on the social, so no. don't even try. But you can email both of us. I'm at Emily Rams at Bust.com. Callie W at Bust.com. And if you rate and review this podcast on Apple Podcasts and then email us and let us know that you wrote a review and let us know what your screen name is that you reviewed under. We might just give you a subscription to Bust Magazine. It could happen. So um, if that's something that interests you, give it a try. See what happens. You could be our next winner. Uh, And you can can find out more about the show at bust.com slash pop charts. Please rate and review us. We don't want to be in the shadows like Barnabas Collins. (laughs) Like Barnabas Collins in the darkest of shadows. We want to be in the light like Barnabas Collins when he (laughs) took the special potion that allowed him to go into the sunlight and be a daywalker for the first time in 200 years. People know that our luscious audio producer Logan Del Fuego is shaking his head at me because he's like, nobody knows who Barnabas Collins is. Okay. He's, he's the vampire in dark shadows. Okay. And I trust you to know this by now. By now. Dark shadow. Thank you again so much for listening. We appreciate you. Until next time. Mwah.